Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Patty Schlonsky, Vice Chair of the Board of Directors of the Center for Community Solutions and a proud City Club member. Today's forum is the Eugene H. Friedheim Lecture of the Center for Community Solutions. E Eugene Friedheim was a prominent Cleveland attorney who, together with his wife Mina, was active in a number of Cleveland charitable organizations. He saw the Center for Community Solutions as having a key role as a planner and community convener. This lecture fund was established by his family and friends to extend his humanitarian influence into the future. We are delighted to have here with us today Mr. Friedheim's son, Don Friedheim, his daughter-in-law, Gerda Friedheim, and Mr. Friedheim's granddaughter, Julie Bargeski, as well as Center for Community Solutions CEO, John Corlett. We are grateful for the contributions made by the Friedheim family to Cleveland's future. We appreciate their support and partnership. Thank you. Today, there are many words to describe technology and the forces in our lives. Disruptive, destructive, and powerful, just to name a few. Our speaker today has a different take. Not only does she think technology can be a force for good, she believes it can be a force for good in government. Jennifer Polka is the founder and executive director of Code for America, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization described by the Washington Post as, quote, the technology world's equivalent of the Peace Corps or Teach for America. Code for America, or CFA as it's commonly known, engages community organizers, developers, and designers to use technology to help governments better serve constituents. Since its inception in 2009, CFA has created programs that encourage collective action to help feed the hungry, reduce unnecessary incarceration, and redesign workforce training. Most recently, it is working to clear 54,000 marijuana convictions in Los Angeles, and we'll hear more about these efforts today. Ms. Polka created CFA in 2009 after running the Game Developers Conference, Game Developer Magazine, and the Independent Games Festival. She left briefly to serve as the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, where she was the architect of and helped found the United States Digital Service. She is the recipient of several awards, including the National Democratic Institute's Democracy Award and has been named by Wired as one of the 25 people who has most shaped the 25, past 25 years. She's a graduate of Yale University. Guiding today's conversation is Cleveland Public Library Executive Director and CEO Felton Thomas, Jr. For the last decade, he has positioned the library as a community deficit fighter 
and launched initiatives aimed at addressing community needs in the areas of technology, education, and economic development. Mr. Thomas earned his undergraduate degree in psychology from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and his master's in library science from the University of Hawaii. He is currently pursuing his PhD in managerial leadership in the information profession at Simmons College. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming at the stage Jennifer Polka and Felton Thomas, Jr. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I understand we have the Fulbright Scholars in the house. Be a big round of applause for the Fulbright Scholars that are with us here. So, Jen, how are you? I'm very well and just very delighted and honored to be here. You're Thank welcome, you. Welcome to Cleveland. Um, me and Jen were talking a little bit. I was wearing my Cleveland Browns hat, and she said, <laughs> as long as it's not a Cavs hat since she's from Oakland, right? She's all right. So we, we're it's two years good. away from the, the Cavs-Golden State debacle, and we just leave it at that. <laughs> all right, so me and Jen, while we haven't met, we run in the same kind of circles with folks, so we kind of know the same friends, have the same friends, and so I asked some of them, what was the first question I should ask you? And they said, ask her about her chickens. <laughs> right? And I said... I noticed Patty took it out of the intro, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I'm not going to ask you about the mythical chickens yet, but if we get to the point that we're talking about mythical chickens, we've gone really, really bad. No, we don't need to talk about the, the chickens, but they're not mythical, they're real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we, we will get to the chickens here in a second then. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> so, but, but my first question to you is, I wanted to ask you, all right, you know, you're, when President Trump won mm -hmm. in 2016, first thing you said was, um, he doesn't own the government, we own the government, all right? Three years later, do we still own the government? That's a tough first question, Felton. That's how we roll at Cleveland. Well, um, we better act to continue to own our government. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's a hard time to talk about this, um, and I think it raises a lot of feelings for people, especially um, folks who've done public service. Um, I wonder how many people here have, have served in government. Um, took your job seriously, didn't you? You, you were ser there to serve the public. And um, I think most public servants um, feel that way. That's why they go into the field. And it can be very difficult to see an institution that you care about. Um, I think we all at Code of America care very much about it um, and, and sort of serve as a voice, especially sort of in Silicon Valley, for how important this institution is. Um, we does takes care of so many critical functions in our country and around the world. Um, and uh, we've, we've neglected it, I think, over the past couple decades. We've, we've neglected maybe politics. I think we've neglected the administration of government and the tools that it needs to do its job. And it, partly as a result of that, we have this situation where people kind of want to tear it down. There's more support for folks who um, you know, come into government in explicitly to make it not work or not do the things that it's meant to do. 
and now we're at a time when um, we're seeing the consequences of that, uh, both domestically and particularly this week, you know, globally. Um, so uh, it's it's very hard to see that, um, but I try to remember that this is still today a democracy, uh, and it is our jobs to get in there and. Um, and make government the work the way that it's supposed to work for people. So we still have um, state and local government who uh, perform most of those functions that really matter to taking care of the other people in our society that we want to take care of. Um, we still have you know, so many wonderful public servants in our federal government um, who are fighting to, um, to make government work for people. And not just in that political context, but also just in the context of having left government behind for so long. Um, so it, there's all these different things going on at once. Um, before President Trump came in, we were already saying there's so much we have to do to make government effective in a digital age, to be able to deliver uh, food assistance to people, to be able to you know, get people the information that they need, um, to have you know, a healthcare system that works. Um, I, Someone mentioned earlier immigration. How should it work? How do we know when our policies are working and how can they be effective? That work didn't stop mm. when President Trump came in. Um, and yet there's this whole other layer of, of really questioning what government should do. And, and it's always been there, but it's particularly acute right now. So I feel very um, deeply uh, the, uh, and an empathy for public servants who are uh, continuing to fight that fight in this era. And, and I hope that more people think about actually serving in government even more so now that it's being so challenged. So you left Code for America, Code for America for a year to go mm -hmm. into government and work under President Obama and create the U.S. Digital Service. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now where are we as far as technology nationwide mm -hmm. considering that the work that they were doing has really been kind of stymied? Yeah, well, it hasn't been, has, uh, been quite as timid as people think, and I think that's some of the good news. Um, first of all, yes, I, I was doing Code for America, and I was telling people, go do a year in government as your, as your tour of duty, and I hadn't actually done it. Yeah. So I felt like I really had to do that, and I had a specific um, thing that I went in to do, which was to borrow from what the folks in the UK had done. They'd created something called the Government Digital Service. And it said, look, we, we, we're not going to be able to serve people the way that we need to in today's era if we don't bring digital competence into government. Everything is, so much is done through digital means. Uh, and not just the technology itself, but a way of thinking that is user-centered and iterative and data-driven. And we can do that here, too. So um, uh, that's really what the United States Digital Service is. It's about technology, but it's really about this different approach that uses technology to really focus on human beings' needs. We call those focusing on user needs over government needs. Um, and, and that's what technology is good for, in my opinion. I don't really care about technology for technology's sake. Um, but uh, that, that survived the transition. The United States Digital Service is still going strong, and they're still doing a lot of really good things, believe it or not. Um, they have a lot of support, particularly from Jared Kushner in the White House. And uh, if you look at the trajectory, which is by no means complete, but um, the trajectory of the benefits that we provide to veterans, for instance. They've gotten better under Obama with the help of the USDS, and they continue to get better, believe it or not. We're, that team is now really embedded in the Veterans Administration and making things like an online healthcare application for veterans that people can actually use. This is really big, and it, it's a big deal. And so. 
um, I, I wouldn't, um, while it is a very difficult time, I wouldn't want to pretend that, um, that everything has, has gone south um, because it's a, really an honor to the folks that stick around. There, there was a really wonderful tweet by a woman named Caitlin Devine who worked for 18F, which is like a sister group to USDS and 18F. Uh, to, uh, in, in federal government when, when Trump was elected and she said, um, uh, believing that government that works is only valid or something like this under a president that you support is the height of cynicism mm -hmm. in an already cynical world. And that's the kind of people who are there. They're saying, it's, okay, so there's, I might not agree with the person um, who is sitting in the Oval Office but I really, really still want people to get, whether it's you know, um, food benefits or a reasonable interaction with the criminal justice system, I still want those things to work. So let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to 2008. Okay. Free chickens. Um, <laughs> and let's ask, you're, you're coming up with this idea, yeah. Code for America. How did it start? Well, I would like to um, stress that we are a, also a nonpartisan organization, but it was in some ways inspired by uh, Barack Obama's campaign for, for president. Um, I had been working on an event called Web 2.0, um, which was, does anyone remember when Web 2.0 was the thing? It was on the cover of magazines and everything. It was a, uh, and it was really just the notion that you know, the, the next wave of the web after the dot-com crash was a participatory web, and it was about people. and. Um, we were doing these conferences, sort of defining that. Uh, Flickr and Facebook and Google were actually you know, quite new then, and we were trying to talk about what that meant for society. And um, I got really inspired by the notion that the best application of those ideas was in government, right? That's, that's where we really need people power. Um, we really uh, need these principles and values of Web 2.0 um, to, to work, and then you could see it in, uh, at least in part, in the way that um, President Obama ran his first campaign. Um, Blue State Digital was the sort of uh, you know, decentralized platform. The, the, the digital was such a huge part of it. Um, we said, well, if, 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 the, if Web 2.0 can help this guy get elected, can it also help him govern better? Can it help government sort of live up to the promise? And uh, that's, that's sort of what, what inspired me to think about um, Code for America. Right. So, ten years later, uh, what are you most proud of? That is such a good question. And there is a lot. I mean, you have a lot to unpack there, so we'll let mm -hmm. you unpack for a little bit. Um, I think I'm most proud um, that there are thousands of people around the country who believe in this vision. Um, we are here in Cleveland this weekend because several hundred of them who are part of Code for America brigades <laughs> Um, which are these volunteer groups based in about 85 cities, including Cleveland, um, are coming together to, to, to talk about how they do their work, to talk about how to make the people power part of the Code for America vision even more powerful. Um, and the, the fact that they do this in their own cities, and all we've sort of done is give them, you know, uh, a little bit of framework and a little bit of support and hopefully a little bit of inspiration and they're taking the idea that government really has to work for people and by people they're the people who are, are making it work and saying i'm gonna i'm gonna self-organize i'm gonna get people in my community rallied around this idea 
uh, all on their own. I think I think that's just amazing, um, and it's I'm I'm just proud of all the effort that they put in. So um, let's talk about some examples. Mm -hmm. I love the fire hydrant example. Yeah. You want to expand on that? So the first year of Code for America, we ran a fellowship program. Um, now we have a lot of our programs aren't, aren't run as a sort of one-year uh, project anymore, but this was a take a year off and, and come work with local government. Um, and it, we had a team in Boston, one of our first very brave partners, who said, sure, we'll bring your, your techies with track jackets in. And uh, they were actually working on a project that didn't really work out. They had a bunch of projects that did work out, but they were supposed to uh, be working on education data, and as we soon found out, it's, it can be very hard to get data out of government. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have a ticking clock, Imagine it. Uh, and a, you have your, your team's only there for 11 months, they, they can kind of wait you out. But so while they were waiting for the education data to show up, uh, they did a whole bunch of other projects, and one of them um, was had to do with the fact that it was a very snowy year. Now we had most of this team was from um, California, and they, they didn't they didn't know how to even like you know. Uh, they didn't have their, their warm coats, they didn't know how to survive a Boston winter, and this was like snowmageddon in, in, in Boston. Uh, and one of the things they observed is that um, the fire hydrants um, would get covered with snow, and this is, they learned from the fire department, these fellows that were sort of embedded in city government, learning about city government, that there was, the city did not dig them out, but you know, if there was a fire, um, and that there's an extra, what, 20 minutes to dig this thing out, it's, it's really a hazard. And they said, but well, why don't we just get people to, 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 to dig them out? You've got people shoveling sidewalks. And so they created a very simple app um, in about a day and a half that allowed you to adopt a hydrant and, and say, yes, I will, I, will, um, I, will, I will dig this out and make it usable. And then um, that kind of took off, not only in Boston as adopt a hydrant, but all these other cities had, had assets that were being neglected and got people to take care of them. And my favorite one, noticed you, you spent some time there in Hawaii, yeah. was the, the, the um, tsunami sirens in Hawaii. If people will steal the batteries out of them, if they don't work, this is a very big problem not to have that work, that people would adopt a uh, tsunami siren and go make sure that it was, that it was fixed, uh, that, it had, that it had batteries in it. So um, let's talk about LA, because that's what mm -hmm. you're working on now. Yeah. Um, really exciting. Um, you're talking what? about our criminal records yes. work? Yeah. 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 I, I think that's going to be you know, a saw work for a long time for you to talk about with, with your work. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about it with the audience? So um, one of the things that we try to do at Code for America is sort of question how government works today if it's not really working for people. And um, while LA is one of our, our big partners here, this actually started in San Francisco and it's now gone around the country. Um, but one of the things that really, really doesn't work for people and uh, is how you clear your criminal records. So um, if you've served your time, um, you know, you still have this, this mark on your record. If you have a felony, it can be really hard to get a job, to get um, you know, public housing, student loans. There, there are just thousands of things that keep you sort of, you know, in a, can keep you in a cycle of poverty and incarceration because you can't get access to the things you need to, to live a productive and prosperous life. Um, and we have all of these remedies around the country now, particularly in California, we have several that say these very low-level felonies that were nonviolent um, should actually just come off of your record entirely so that you pass a basic background check. But what we ask people to do um, is, you know, go down to the police station, get your rap sheet, file paperwork. You got to understand what all these questions are on these forms. Then you got to. 
send your form in, you gotta go back. It's about 10 different steps. It takes about nine months in certain, in most counties in California. And um, it's really confusing. I mean, we, you know, we hire professionals to go do user research and they're like, I can't figure out how to do this. So in California, there are several hundred thousand people who are eligible for full records clearance um, under Prop 47 and then um, Prop 64, and I won't get into what those both of those are, the 64 is legalization of marijuana, who despite the law passing, saying that they shouldn't have a criminal record and they should pass a background check, um, almost none of these folks had gotten through the process. Um, we think it's probably under 3%. Um, so one of the things that we did to start was say, well, let's put that form online, let's make the questions easy to answer, let's help them get their rap sheet. There's all these things that you can do to make it easier, um, but ultimately we knew that that was not the answer. Um, you're still only gonna get, what, 10,000 people, is I think what we got through in two, two and a half years, through a process um, that is not necessary. The process doesn't need to happen. The law says the thing is off your record, just take it off your record. And we finally found uh, DA George Gascon in San Francisco, who was willing to um, pilot automatic records clearance. Now, what he meant by automatic, though, was that he would hire all of these um, uh, paralegals. They would stay late, and they would file the paperwork for you. But the, still, the paperwork was still being generated. Um, someone was still manually scanning rap sheets to see if the codes on them correlated with uh, you know, codes that were able to be expunged per the law. And that still was gonna take a really, really long time. It was easier on people. And we said, well, look, there's data in a database at the, uh, the Department of Justice. Can you give us access on it? We wrote a very uh, simple um, algorithm that matches these codes to the law. Um, and with San starting with San Francisco, um, we ran uh, an analysis of their records and there were 8,132 people for whom we could just automatically clear their records. Uh, then DA Lacey in, in LA said, let's do it there too. So that was uh, uh, several hundred thousand. So we're at about 200,000 just in California. Um, amazing DA in Chicago, uh, I'm sorry, in Cook County, uh, Kim Fox. Uh, she's doing it before the law has even passed. This is another decriminalization of marijuana. She's like, the day that uh, marijuana is no longer uh, illegal, everybody who has a marijuana conviction on their record should already be able to pass a background check. So you see this sort of you know, um, uh, fight now to do it faster and faster and to, to really help people out. But th the thing I love most about that, uh, well, there's two things that I really love about that. One is it's not about making government that we have today digital, because it just wasn't going to be any better. It's about challenging how government works. And the second thing is that those policies were so disproportionately burdensome on black and brown people in our country, and so rolling them back um, has a disproportionate positive effect on communities that really uh, deserve much more of a break than that, yeah. but that's a, that's a little bit that we can do. So I think that you know one of my favorite quotes is that the future's already here. Yep. It's just unevenly distributed. Yep. And so, you know, with what code for America is done, that's a classic example. What are other things that you're looking to, to kind of make sure that there's a fairness within how technology can work? Well, there's a, a ton more in the criminal justice system. And um, I think that's probably one of our, our richest um, areas mm. to work in. Uh, there's so many ways, and one of the, um, uh, one of the, the lines that our, our criminal justice team uses is, and I know we're on the radio, so I'll, I will change the word, uh, no one should be in jail for um, 
Well, the, the word that we use is BS, right? So, uh, but there's a bunch of people. The president who are, says it all the time now, so it's okay. I have a different standard. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, there's a bunch of reasons that people end up in jail in this country that um, really aren't criminal at all. They have to do um, with, you know racist policies, but they also have to do with an administration of a system that's just really gummed up. So people who get a, um, a bench warrant for your arrest because you couldn't go stand in line all day at the, at, the, um, at, the, at the courthouse and pay a ticket, and you end up in jail, that's not, paying a ticket's not really mm. criminal. We don't really mean for people to be in jail for that, but our system is so clunky that people end up. So, so there's, a, there's a rich, rich um, uh, body of work that we have really only scratched the surface of in criminal justice. But um, the provision of benefits, so, so as much as the criminal justice system needs to stop dragging people down into, um, you know, into sort of a persistent underclass, it's just, it's, it really is actively doing that. We also need a safety net that balances people back up. And we, a lot of our work right now at Code for America is on Medicaid and SNAP benefits, where, um, you know, California, very progressive state, and yet, you had, when we started working, um, we were the second lowest state in the country in terms of participation rate in SNAP. So about 40% of people who were eligible and applied weren't actually getting SNAP benefits. That's not a safety net that works. So we have a, we have a um, one of our most mature projects now serves the entire state of California. Um, it's created an online app um, that allows you to apply for food stamps in about seven minutes using a mobile phone. We support you by text message. Um, we are the official partner of the state of California now. And this is in contrast to what was before, which was an online, online, in air quotes, application that didn't work on a mobile phone and took about an hour to, to get through, a little less than an hour. But, and I don't know how the, um, the computers in the Cleveland Public Libraries work, but in California, those um, computers will time out after 30 minutes and so if you go to the library to fill out a SNAP application um, and you get 30 minutes through an application that takes 45 minutes and it closes out while you're working on it, the application also doesn't let you save your work. You basically can't get through the application. So, you know, these are ridiculous reasons not to give somebody food benefits when they need them. Our policy is to, if you're eligible, you'll get food benefits, but the policy really wasn't um, being implemented because we're bad at digital and we need to get better at it. So uh, in talking around that in the technologists and, and we have a lot of young folks in, um, a couple of months ago we had uh, City Clubs uh, hosted Dr. Bettina Love and uh, she's the author of We Want to Do More Than Survive. So mm -hmm. her, her premise yeah. is that you have the teaching community um, which is overwhelmingly white yeah. um, and that it's not going to change overnight. Mm -hmm. And so that the, the folks who are teachers have to decide that they're going to be co-conspirators in the lives mm -hmm. of, yeah. the, of the kids that they are helping um, instead of being just allies on that, Yeah. right? So the tech world it, it has its own issues around diversity mm -hmm. and, and, all of, and all of that. And um, there seems to be a bigger divide in what's happening um, between um, tech and the um, what the community is able to get. Um, what do you see the tech world doing around that? Well, the tech world is in a bit of its own reckoning, I think, around that largely. Um, an awareness of how um, a, ver a, a not very diverse um, uh, 
well, at least traditionally, uh, not very diverse tech workforce has, has created some significant problems. Um, and it's not just that um, tech, of course, has been a great creator of wealth, and um, that's, that's a real problem. Um, it, it's sort of exacerbated um, many divides, but also that um, if you don't have a diverse set of people making the apps that people use, you're going you're gonna to miss stuff. And many people have said, thank you. <laughs> Yeah. That's the library table over there. Yeah. Just ignore them. <laughs> no, I'm clapping right with you. Uh, so, you know, what we said when we sort of started Code for America was, look, um, you know, if you're a startup in, in Silicon Valley, you can say, my market is X, and you can go for that market. But um, you don't get to do that in government. Uh, you don't get to choose your, your market. You, you got to serve everybody. And if you're doing food stamps, you're doing the criminal justice system, um, you got to really serve people who, if you, you know, um, you might not understand their lives very well. Um, we've really lived this. I mean, I can't tell you for so long when we started this records clearance work, I just kept saying, I don't get it. Like, if you can get your record clear, why aren't more people applying? Um, turns out, if you were incarcerated, you know, a lot of people are quite traumatized by that experience. Being invited yeah. back into that system mm -hmm. is not something you really want to yeah. do. And you know, I had a little bit of an empathy gap there. And it's only through user research and you know, user research really grounded in empathy. And I'm not a user researcher, but we have some of the best user researchers in the entire tech industry, mm -hmm. or maybe the best, working on our staff who really know how to, this is a discipline, this is a thing you really learn how to do to get in there and understand um, understand users even if they're not it's not lived experience that you have had. Um, and I think, you know, we said if, if we're gonna do this across the board, we cannot build an organization or a community uh, that looks like the tech industry. We're we're gonna have to make an effort to make sure that the people at Code for America represent the great diversity of our nation. And so um, I'm, I'm glad we've been able to do that. Um, I don't think it has as hard as many of the tech companies seem to think that it has, has been, uh, or it is for, they sort of seem to claim that it is for them. Um, but it isn't easy. I, I, I completely acknowledge that. Um, I think you have to have a really good why. And we were blessed to have a good why. You cannot serve this country if you don't look like this country. And I think the tech companies have to figure out what their why is and then really come at it as a pl from a place of, of passion um, and real conviction, not from sort of wanting to uh, wanting to look good. It's, you can't do it if you're just trying to look good. So um, taking that a little bit further, you know, I'm throwing out all the uh, City Club references here. <laughs> and Anand Gurdardis was here. Oh, you had Anand. You know, and he, he kind of blew this place up. But that's what he does. Yes, he you know. does. And so you're on the other side, though. I saw the interview with you and him in which you, you talked about trying to balance out. Mm -hmm. You work with the Googles and, and mm -hmm. all the tech we do. folks, and you, you try to see the good in them where he sees them as robber barons who are stealing from the rich, um, from the poor and giving to the rich. How do you balance it out? Because that's it's essential yeah. to what you do. Well, I mean, um, Let's be really clear. So I, I, I found Anand's book actually in galleys. It was, it was sent to, I think it, he claims he sent it to me, but he really sent it to my husband. He's just being nice about it. Um, and I, I, I read it in, in a day. Like I, I just opened it up and said, oh my god, someone needs to be saying this. I'm also running an organization that lives on philanthropy. I mean, we, we get a lot of government funding, but our model is build with philanthropy, so you can build to meet user needs. 
and then scale with government funding. So um, I actually like I like all of our the philanthropists that support us because I think they see what we see, which is the best kind of philanthropy is the one that shifts power. Right? We're trying to shift power back to our democratically elected institutions, and um, I kind of like our folks that do that. I, I think good for them, and thank you for supporting Code for America. Um, I think where um, I think where he and I differ is less on our view of, of sort of oligarchy, but more that I think Anand, um, again, whom, for whom I have enormous respect, when he diagnoses the issue, he's not quite getting that um, when you're pushing people back to the democratically elected process, um, that is what I live for. And I am so glad that he is saying that. We have to make our decisions not um, by, you know, decision, the major decisions of our country cannot be made by a few who have a lot of money. That is sort of what's happening right now. Um, but if you're telling people to go back to democracy, we have to make democracy a little bit more attractive to people. There's a reason people have gotten frustrated with our government. And if you, uh, have, and I will not presume that people in this room haven't, because it's statistically, um, half of people will rely on food stamps in some point in their lives. You might be your parents that applied, and so you didn't have the um, that experience of actually applying for it. But I'll tell you, like once you, I, I know it in California. I don't know here in Ohio, but you know, I personally went and tried to sign up for food stamps, and I thought the government was not my friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, they don't, it, it's not just that it's hard; it's that the process doesn't treat you with dignity and respect. So. What I want Anand to sort of, you know, also um, reflect is that yes, we need to tell people, let's strengthen these democratic institutions, let's make decisions that way, but let's also fix our democracy, let's also fix the bureaucracy that, you know, makes that democracy real for people on an everyday basis so that we want to and do invest and make a government that works in a digital age and works for people. You know, uh, time is is getting close and I'm Patty's gonna come up because we're gonna take questions. But while I have this, I could ask the one question about a government that works. Libraries. Libraries. So, <laughs> so, yes, libraries. Yeah. Let's have a round of applause for libraries. The best. So just the question how can libraries better work with, with mm -hmm. technology um, to be a partnership for better government? Um, well, I mean, I'm just excited about the way that libraries are sort of inventing themselves as the civic spaces. And um, uh, as you probably know, I mean, um, part of our little slice of that is that many of our Code for America brigades actually meet in libraries. So they're there um, you know, getting people involved. They're also there um, you know, getting people aware of data that they might be able to, to play with, civic data that will you know, really enable them to engage on a really deeper level than they have. I mean, we were talking earlier about showing up at city, city council meetings and your opportunity to speak there, but the much deeper engagement of actually saying, I'm, you know, um, well, I'll give you an example. We have uh, um, one of our brigades from New York took New York City public school kids and said, you know, we're doing these civic, civic data hackathons. And it's like, well, what do the kids care about? What data do they want to look at? That's a, giving them access to that and letting them play with it is a much richer conversation than saying weigh in on the issues, right? They, mm. and, and it's very educational. So the role that, that libraries are taking in um, the movement to open data, to engage people around data, and then I, I was telling Felton, right when I arrived, I saw signs for your Maker Faire. Uh, it's happening, what is it, November 2nd? Yeah. 
you know, that kind of engagement of getting people to see themselves in the community, not just as consumers, we're always told we're consumers, um, but to say, you know, that's part of what the library does for you, is turn, you know, reminds you that you, you're a thinker and a maker and, and you, your community is full of people who inspire you. I think it's, I think they're the, in many cases, the most vibrant part of our civic life. Okay, good. So, Patty, will you join us? Thank you, that was a great conversation. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum with Jennifer Polka, founder and executive director for Code for America. She's in conversation with Cleveland Public Library executive director and CEO, Felton Thomas, Jr. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it to at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today, our Director of Programming, Stephanie Jansky, and City Club intern, Remy Orasanya. May we have the first question, please? Good afternoon. Um, thank you so much for being here. So my question has to do with how the work that you're doing in Code for America does dovetails with data journalism. Mm -hmm. We've had some really great examples here in Cleveland over the last few years where we had journalists looking into lead problems mm -hmm. and maybe it took them three or four years. They struggled with unlocking the data, getting the data. They mm -hmm. worked with our Open Cleveland Brigade to get some of that data and it's resulted in tremendous policy, decision-making, changes, and some implementation that's getting underway. I'd love to know what else is going on in terms of data journalism and the work that Code for America does. Well, yeah, data journalism is so important. I believe, is Will Scorer here? Yeah, Will's back there. There, excellent, yes, thank you. So some of the people involved with that are here. Um, I would say um, they're kind of sister groups. I mean, a, a significant number of the Code for America brigades um, engage in um, opening data or analyzing data along with data journalists um, because that that is uh, they, they happen to have some technical expertise often uh, that um, the journal you know newsrooms didn't traditionally have they have them they have that technical expertise now in much greater amounts as time goes on which is important mm -hmm. very important um, to the health of our democracy um, but these what we have the sort of data journalism branch of this movement and then we have the sort of service delivery branch so when we're talking about clearing criminal records there's a huge data component when you're talking about you know helping people get food stamps there's also a huge data component but there in those two um, those latter two examples it's not open data we're not we're not sharing the information about food stamps um, with the public um, but we're using it to design better services that work for people. So they're, they're really two different branches on the same tree. Hi, thank you for being here today. Um, as a young nonprofit professional with interest in including data into my work and more into my field, but no real tech skills, where do I get started with incorporating this? In for my for my professional future. Thank you. Well, I think you should talk to Will, who's right there. <laughs> Um, uh, you don't need to have tech skills to help make government work better, uh, and that's one of the biggest myths that we should bust, and I see Will um, nodding vigorously in the back. Um, we just ran something called the National Day of Civic Hacking 
which was amazing. And I went to Open Oakland. I live in Oakland, California, and I met so many people who said, oh, this is my first time here. I didn't want to come because it's called Code for America, and I don't code. And I'm like, I don't either. <laughs> I coded about two pages of HTML in the 90s and, and kind of moved on. So you don't need to have tech skills. All you need to do is find a community and, um, and have a passion for making your community better and um, just uh, come to uh, Open Cleveland and dive right in. If I can just add on that, I think one thing that I, I, I found as I talk to, especially librarians around data, is that they don't understand that data is just a, a, a place to take you to make decisions. Yeah. So all you're trying to do is make better decisions, and the data can help you, but it's not the end all. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Cleveland. Thank you Thank both you. for your public service. Um, you know, some have said that this political moment we're experiencing is in part an expression of the tensions of globalization mm -hmm. and of automation. Uh, you can look to Youngstown or even to our own parking meters here in Cleveland to feel that automation hypertension, if you yeah. will. Uh, the question for you is, uh, is something like universal basic income a necessity in order to catalyze automation and the digital revolution that we're experiencing? Um, it's an excellent question. I think I get at it a little bit from a different place, which is we need a safety net that works. Um, one of the projects that's on our horizon um, where we're sort of taking the model, the very successful model of streamlining um, and providing feedback loops to administrators in um, the food assistance world in, in SNAP and Medicaid, uh, we're taking that into a program called EITC, Earned Income Tax Credit. People know what that is. Um, you know, if you expanded EITC, you'd have something pretty close to universal basic income. but. Um, uh, as Patty said in the beginning, we think in sort of disruptive terms. We think of, of, of something like UBI as being a disruptive option. I'm fine with that. Um, I'm also fine with taking the options we have today and making them work. And um, if we try to implement something like universal basic income with the government that we have today, we're probably going to replicate the same problems that our other safety net programs experience. So I care less about um, what the actual policy is, I guess, within some boundaries. I'd like the policy to be fair. Um, I'd like the, pol the policy to create a robust safety net because automation means uh, more and more that we need one. Um, I'd like it to be administered effectively. I'd like it to, um, and part, part of what effective means is that we actually understand if it's working. Um, and we understand that um, in an ongoing basis, not like we're gonna try it for 10 years and then we're gonna analyze it. And digital tools and real-time data give us the ability to do that now. So I'm really interested in this idea of sort of iterative policymaking. Um, fortunately, some of the first experiments, um, I think probably folks have seen in the news over the past couple of weeks, maybe a month or so, that the experiment with universal basic income in Stockton is, is, is returned some results, which is great. So we can learn from that. It's not going to tell us everything. It wasn't at scale, and people knew, you know, didn't have it for a longer time. Um, so I'm really happy about that, but I don't think it necessarily needs to end in that particular policy. I think it needs to end in a re-envisioning of the safety net for the 21st century, one that's delivered in a way that we actually get, you know, information about um, as it's um, as as it's being implemented, um, and that that can be administered much more cheaply than we do things today, much more effectively, and most importantly, we've got to administer benefits to people in a way that shows dignity and respect to them. 
Hello. Uh, in order to have an uh, active uh, democracy, people need uh, accurate information in order to make decisions on who is going to represent them. Yeah. And many times in our digital age, that information comes from social media, YouTube, or other digital media outlets. Do you feel that those companies have a responsibility to police the information on their platforms? And how do they balance that with free speech? Well, that is a very, very difficult question. Very Felton, question. you should answer that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse for someone who works on um, the, primarily on the delivery of services. Um, but if you're asking for my personal opinion, I would say yes, they do have a responsibility. Um, I think it's very complicated, um, you know, how to do it. Um, I think, you know, most importantly, though, um, one of the ways that I think about that problem is that um, I believe that whether they have a moral or ethical responsibility or not, we, <laughs> as the American public, need to tell our government to be digitally competent enough to hold them to that. And we're not, we don't have a government right now that knows how, how technology works well enough to effectively regulate them. Mm. So I would really like us to acknowledge as a country that for us to effectively govern in the 21st century, we need to understand how technology and these very complex, they're not just, it's not just technology, right? It's these very complex ecosystem of data that moves from one place to another um, all, all over the place. And yeah, it's, sorry, it's, it's complicated, too bad. Like we've got to like, we've got to, we've got to get good at that. I don't want government to regulate in ways that is uninformed by how these systems actually work because then um, what'll happen is the one law that is always in effect will be very devastating, and that is the law of unintended consequences. Uh, I have a question. Do other democracies do a better job with these ma major projects than we do, for instance, Canada or Great Britain? Can we learn from other democracies? Because we're not doing a very good job. That's a great question. Um, uh, we are learning from other um, democracies. Um, in fact, um, I think I shared earlier that um, I, I, I went to the White House to start the United States Digital Service because I had a complete aha moment walking into um, a part of the UK government called the Government Digital Service. And I saw what they were doing and I said, this is, this is groundbreaking. And that's, that's modeled after, uh, USDS is modeled after that. The Canadian Digital Service now is also modeled after that. Their efforts in many other countries, Peru, Argentina, Mexico, um, all saying essentially there's got to be a way that you bring this user-centered, data-driven, and iterative approach in, um, to, that uses technology into government. Um, there's a lot to learn. That, to be fair, it's not perfect anywhere. Um, we hear a lot about Estonia. Anybody wondering when I was going to use talk about Estonia? Everyone talks about Estonia because they are super, super digital. Here's the thing. They don't have the complexity of law and policy that we do. Um, it's not you know, a, a, a super simple place. But um, we, it, the problem of digitizing our government, as I, I think I kind of touched on a little bit with this records clearance issue, is not that it's hard to take forms and policies and put them into code. The problem is that if you do that, you make something that still doesn't work, it's just digital. 
And so um, we have many, many stakeholders in our government that make changing anything incredibly complex, like hundreds of people have to say yes, and any one of them can say no. Um, and so we have to deal not just, uh, and that's true for us, that's true for the UK, it's true for, for Canada, but I think we probably have the most um, complexity in our law, policy, regulation, and just culture of government than all of those folks. And so we have to learn not just the lessons of digitization, but the lesson, lessons of political will to simplify um, our government to make it work for people. And the only thing that works there is aligning people around who is the person trying to use that? <laughs> Does that person have a voice in this? Or are, are 17 different departments just fighting about the wording of a question on a form? There's a right answer to that, which is the thing that's been tested with users. And we've got to give them the ability to get in there and, and um, speak for them and say that's how this is going to work, for, it's going to work for people. Um, but the UK has fought that fight, Canada's fighting that fight. Um, I think, frankly, I think Estonia is fighting a different fight, which is you know, a little bit more of a greenfield um, uh, opportunity than we have. Um, but we must stay connected to all of these communities around the world that are trying to do what the US is uh, doing at the state, um, local, and federal level. Uh, speaking to what we were talking about earlier, what are your ideas about using digital to improve immigration policy and enforcement? Um, so this is a, a challenging topic because immigration policy is an emotional issue. Um, uh, we deal with the impact of various immigration-related policies at Code for America because one of the North Stars that we are um, guiding towards as it relates to SNAP in California is to close the participation gap. And um, when um, our federal government says things like, um, you know, people who um, are of maybe they have families of mixed immigration status or can't, will be um, penalized for applying for public benefits, it has a really, really negative effect. Lots of people who are eligible then don't apply out of fear, even when that fear is really technically not grounded. Um, and you can have, it's, I think it's pretty easy to have empathy for someone who would decide not to apply for benefits out of fear for someone in their family. Um, so um, we're tracking that part of the immigration debate very closely and trying to figure out how you, how you re-educate folks, how you get the word out, that it's how you make um, the way that you would apply for SNAP friendlier and convince people that it's still okay to do it. That's true in California and around the country. Um, uh, I'm also tracking um, immigration issues in it because my former colleagues who stayed on at uh, the USDS had some real emotional issues around, um, well, this is you know a little bit related, but um, under President Obama, um, uh, there was a, a policy to increase the number of refugees, for instance, who could come into the country. And that team found that, in fact, while you could increase the policy, you could, you could raise the limit in the policy, um, logistically, the bureaucrats simply could not get through the number of people because of the way the process worked. It's a lot like what I talked about with records clearance. If it's 20 steps and it involves all these pieces of paper and like physical paper being signed by someone who's in a country for a couple of days and then leaves. They didn't sign that paper. You ha that refugee has to wait for that person physically to come back and sign the paper. Um, the United States Digital Service team actually digitized signatures so that 
um, you could get more people through. Essentially, um, it's a technical fix to allow for the implementation of a policy that related to refugees. Um, there's a bunch of other projects like that that had to deal with uh, you know, bringing people into the country. And they, after the election, so they were proud of that work, I think rightfully so. And then after the election, they said, oh my gosh, we've just given more ability to track vulnerable people. Uh, this is true of the DACA database as well, to an administration who does not seem to value their um, place in this country and, and really be working in their interests. So um, I think immigration is one of those places that reminds us that when we make a government more effective, it can be used for good and it can be used for um, activities that might not align with your values. That's a very good way of saying it. <laughs> thank you for your presentation and thank you for the work you're doing. Um, I think I heard that you have a background in computerized gaming. And as I was listening to some of the challenges that you're facing, I was thinking about the young people that I see interacting with those games and how effective they are and how quickly they gain mastery. And I was thinking, is there some kind of connection that you could make there that would make things work better? Um, to, to, to bring people with, with digital skills into this world, is that what you mean? Yeah, and yeah. using the kind of techniques that they use with gaming so mm -hmm. that people, so that that could transfer into on, um, app, you know, accessing things that people need to access for practical reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, gaming, I think, remains um, um, a wonderful way for young people to get into digital. Um, a particularly thing, I mean, my daughter plays Minecraft so much that it scares me, but, um, <laughs> uh, and she does not want to be a programmer. Her dad's a programmer, and so she says that's, that's off the table. But um, I think gaming is, is a great way um, to, to get kids interested and to sort of see what's possible. I think that that's the biggest thing, is once you sort of see what's possible, um, you know, then we're in a position to say, not only can you make an amazing world that, that people can enjoy, but you can also make your amazing world better, yeah. and, and that's the trick, is to sort of shift, the, shift their focus. Yeah. One of the things I was, I was really interested in was in the Adopt a, uh, a Hydrant, mm -hmm. was that it was like the app was like a game, and so if yeah. you didn't do what you were supposed to do, somebody could knock you off and take your hydrant, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but mm -hmm. that's kind of how people look at it now. Yeah. It's really interesting. We had, we had a number of other sort of game-like um, things early on in Code for America um, that were really about reminding people that um, the world around you, especially cityscapes, you know, um, they change and they can change because you change them, right? So um, a really successful project called Street Mix um, that allowed people to just say, you know, my, this, the street near my house has you know, lanes for cars. Maybe it could also have lanes for bikes and buses and it could have you know, trees and you could just, you could just mock it up essentially and send it on to city council. It's kind of a game, but kind of a way to remind you that you, you can influence the built environment around you and there's a way to do that. And some of it's digital and some of it's political and some of it's bureaucratic. Today we have been listening to a forum with Jennifer Palka, founder and executive director for Code for America. She's in conversation with Cleveland Public Library executive director and CEO Felton Thomas, Jr. 
Today's forum is the Eugene H. Friedheim Lecture of the Center for Community Solutions. Today's forum is also part of our Disruptors series sponsored by Bank of America. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Polka and Mr. Thomas. And special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us at online at cityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.